with you. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, we're going to start in verse 6 and go all the way through the end of that particular chapter. And then we'll set the, the backstage for what is going on in this particular text. But starting in verse 6, if you would follow along and read with me, it says this. Isaiah writes, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Verse 8 probably is a very familiar verse. Probably we've quoted this many times in difficult situations in our life. For, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Verse 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my words, my word be that goes forth out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, and be led in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 through 13. I would invite you this morning to keep your, your, um, your finger there. We're going to go through these verses one at a time. And there are four things that I would like to bring out to you this morning. The title of my message is Between the Now and the Not Yet. I'd like to explain to you where Israel was at this point in their history but I would also like to bring the application back to where we are. We are living in the now, but yet God has promised us so much that is yet to come. How do we, how do you and I, as followers of Jesus, live between the now and the not yet? The context of Isaiah 55. Let me take you back a few hundred years from, from uh, the writing of this. After Solomon's death. One of the greatest kings, David and Solomon, two of the great kings of Israel. After Solomon's death, Israel's kingdom was split in two. And if you remember the two men, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. And he was uh, brought a message from the people of Israel after Solomon's death. And the people of Israel said, please lighten our load. Take some of the workload off. Because Solomon was, was in these building projects. And he was in a... Uh, building project of defending the nation of Israel. And if you understand the land of Israel and its geography and the time period of the day, if you could protect the valleys that came up into the hill country where Jerusalem was, he was fortifying these cities, but he was recruiting the labor from the people of Israel to build these fortified cities. And as they expanded the kingdom, he would build more fortified cities. And the people were weary. They were tired from this work. And so they, they came to Rehoboam, Jer, our Solomon's son, and said, please lighten the work. Well, Rehoboam, instead of looking to the advisors of his father, and remember Solomon was the wisest man 
that has ever lived, and he had a great council of advisors who would advise him. But instead of seeking their advice, their advice was loosen and lighten the load for the people, and the people will be loyal to you. Rehoboam decided that he was going to ask the advice of his buddies, the young men who grew up in the palace complex with him. And they gave him the advice to tighten the screws, so to speak, and make it harder on the people and put them, so to speak, under bondage. And the people rebelled. And Jeroboam comes on the scene. He was a part of the scene earlier. He was one of the foremen in Solomon's building projects, but he fled to Egypt because of conflict with Solomon. And all of a sudden he comes back and he takes the 10 northern tribes who, who leave uh, their loyalty to Rehoboam and they begin serving Jeroboam. And so this happened in 930 BC. Jeroboam takes the 10 northern tribes. The two southern tribes are Judah and Simeon, and they stay underneath the control of Rehoboam. Israel, the northern kingdom, is the part of Israel, the, the nation of Israel, that Isaiah is speaking to here. So the ten northern kingdoms, think about this. In their existence, before they were carried off into captivity, there were 19 kings, nine different families represented. There wasn't one godly king among the northern kingdom. They immediately went into idolatry under Jeroboam. Jeroboam formed two golden calves, put one in Samaria and put the other one in the northern city of Dan, kicked out all of the priests and all the Levites who fled down to Judah, and Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel from this point, becomes very idolatrous. But yet God has not given up on them. In 721, tragically, the nation of Assyria came and led the northern kingdom into captivity, destroyed their towns, destroyed their cities, took the best of the people, carried them off to the land of Assyria, scattered them abroad, and the Assyrians, one of their main goals was to create loyalty to the Assyrian empire, and they would break any social, family, religious connections to the people that they had, that they had conquered. Isaiah is writing and prophesying to Israel in captivity, those ten northern tribes. But in the book of Isaiah, there is a promised remnant that will come. He's saying there will be some of you that will return, and you will return to the very land that you have been taken from. And this is very important in Old Testament history because God promised through Abraham that there would be a land and that the land would be uh, in the, the hands of Israel. This promise of this remnant and this return to the land is all wrapped up in the servant language that we find in the book of Isaiah. The servant that it's referring to should have a capital S, probably does so in your translations. Capital S, meaning it's referring to the Messiah, the coming promised Messiah, Jesus himself. So they, they are being encouraged right now. They're in captivity. They're in bondage. There has been this social disconnect from everything that they know, family, culture, land, all their social structures gone, but yet they are being encouraged while you're in captivity, live between the now and the not yet. And so this is the context in which we find um, ourselves this morning. So as we approach this book, remember that you and I are also living between the now and the not yet. 
Just think of our history and what's happened globally in the last three years. Look at all the changes that have transpired, social changes that have taken place, agendas that have been pushed, war overseas. Um, all this stuff that's happening around us, what are we to do? God encourages us to live in the now, but looking forward to the not yet. So I would invite you this morning, as we look at this text, I would invite you to look at four ways that we are encouraged to live between the now and the not yet. The first point that I have this morning is found in verses 6 and 7. And it's this, recognize the predicament of man. Recognize the predicament of man. As, as Isaiah is writing here and prophesying to the nation of Israel, he's telling them, take a deep look inside and remember what got you to where you're at. What put you into bondage? What put you into captivity? It was their own choices. But yet God in his grace and his mercy and compassion and the greatness of his heart and his his hesed or long-suffering love that he has, he encourages them in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Here's a nation in captivity due to their own wrongdoing, and yet God continues, okay, I've given you over to your ways and your thoughts and your desires, but yet I haven't given up on you. I'm still here for you. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Through the prophet Isaiah, he's saying, here's what you need to do. Three things. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Secondly, call upon him. Thirdly, return to the Lord. Each one of these come with a descriptor. So seek the Lord while he may be found. There's there's a point in time where you can so move away from God that God says, I'm going to leave you to your own devices. He has already started this with the 10 northern uh, uh, tribes. I'm going to leave you alone. I'm going to let you fall into your wickedness. I'm going to let you live in that and let you reap the repercussions. We find this in Romans 1, that God gave them over. Three different times that phrase is used. God gave them over to a variety of things. But what what Isaiah is doing is he's saying, you haven't gone too far. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Then he says, call upon him while he is near. He's giving them hope. He's telling them how to live in their current situation in the now. And then he calls them to return to the Lord. Why? Because God is compassionate, and he will abundantly abundantly pardon. He's willing and ready to forgive and to restore. And this is the promises that Isaiah keeps bringing in the entire book of Isaiah to the nation of Israel. So the idea that is wrapped up in these three phrases is not the idea of gaining new knowledge. It's the idea of repentance. Turn from your wicked ways and your wicked thoughts. Return to me. Seek me. Call upon me. Return to me, and I will abundantly pardon. There's this idea wrapped up in here of restoration. Why is Israel in captivity? They're in captivity due to their own wickedness, 
and their own unrighteousness. It says here in verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. The word way and the word thoughts come back to us later in this text. Um, if, you, if, you, if you're a person that marks your Bible, those would be words that I would mark because they come back out as we, as we move forward. Israel, in their desperate situation, you know what they want? Same thing we would want. I want out of this now. You know, when we get in trouble, we realize we've done, I want out of it now. Lord, take me out of this. That's what they're wanting. But God says, no. You need to seek me. You need to call upon me. Your hearts need to return to me. You need to forsake your thoughts and your ways and learn to live in the now, not in the not yet. That's coming. It will come. But we have to learn to live in the now. How do we do that? Israel is encouraged to repent, to turn back to the Lord. You see, God is more concerned about the affections of our heart than he is about the actions that we bring out. If he has our affections, then our actions, our behaviors, and our lifestyle will follow. God is longing to restore Israel. Israel is learning to live or dealing to live between the now and the not yet. You see, Israel did not need to be rescued out of their captivity. That's the not yet. That's coming, but it's not yet. Israel needed to be rescued from themselves. As followers of Jesus, Christians who have been redeemed, we have to admit that we still have sin residing in us. The motto that you read, it sounds very familiar this morning, that Andrew gave, that we are a broken church, full of broken people, all in need of God's grace. This is what we say in our church every Sunday morning as well, because it's a reminder we haven't arrived, and we still have sin residing in us, but God has grace that he's willing to offer us. Original sin, each one of us has original sin that has taken up residence in every part of our human constitution. We are broken as broken can be. Our ways and our thoughts, we are broken people. What we still need most is exactly what Israel needed. You and I need to be rescued from ourselves, from our own sin. And God, through his servant, Jesus, provides that opportunity. Let me read a portion this morning from a book that I recently read called Dangerous Calling by uh, Dr. Paul Tripp. I think it really will help explain. Uh, it's easy for us to admit all of us are sinners. But are we willing to get to the point where we are willing to admit that I'm broken, that I'm messed up, that without God's grace, the only place that I would be in is in captivity myself? Let me read this to you. Uh, it hit me between the eyes. This book is actually written to pastors and, and church workers, um, but it's very applicable for us today. It doesn't matter who you are. You are at the same time a person in the middle of your own sanctification. You are not yet free of sin and, it's, and all of its attendant dangers. You still carry around moral susceptibility. You are capable of giving way to disastrous things. You are capable of losing your way. You are capable of ungodly attitudes and dark desires. You have not been completely delivered from pride, greed, lust, anger, bitterness. 
These are places where you are an idolater. Where the agenda is being set by a desire for some created thing more than it is by worship of your creator. You do not always minister as an ambassador. There are times when you live with the attitude of a king rather than one called to represent the king. You do not always love God above all else. You do not always love your neighbor as yourself. You are not always kind and compassionate. You are not always patient and forgiving. There are moments when you love your little kingdom of one more than you love God's kingdom. There are times when you love comfort and pleasure more than you love redemption. There are times when pride renders you unkind and unapproachable. There are times when you want everything to be about you. There are times when you are irritated by the very people you are called to love. You are not proud of all your thoughts. You would not want others to hear all your words. You do things in private moments that you would not want seen in public. These things are true of me as well. And they give evidence to the fact that we are in desperate need of ministry ourselves. We who proclaim the message of grace are deeply in need of grace ourselves. We have not arrived. We are not moved beyond a moment-by-moment need for grace. We are not yet out of danger. We are not free from temptation. The war of our heart still rages. We still fall and fail. We simply have not arrived. But we are tempted to think that because we buy into false assessments of our spiritual condition, because we are all tempted to be self-sufficient and to think that we are independently righteous, we are all attracted to an overinflated, grand view of ourselves. We all tend to want to have our righteousness recognized and confirmed. We all want to be seen right and mature. We all want to be looked up to and esteemed. So we are attracted to the things that seem to define us as Christ-like and mature. In a word, we are still susceptible to having our definition of ourselves formed by carnival mirrors that are in every person's life. But remember, no mirror that you look into to know yourself will ever show you, you, with the clarity and the accuracy of the mirror of God's word. Is that not a description of where each and every one of us are? I know it is of me. Let me give you an illustration. Um, I love playing golf. Honestly, I'm not very good at it. Um, how many of you understand golf? Do you understand the scoring? Okay, I'll walk you, kind of walk you through this. This, this happened to me about seven or eight months ago. Um, and if, if I'm honest, it almost happened to me yesterday as I was playing golf. Um, you have various types of holes that you play, par three, par four, par five. The idea is on a par three that you take three shots to get the ball in the little cup. Par four, four shots to get it in the cup. Par five, five, okay? If, you, if you're one over, if you go like par three and you get it in four, that's a bogey, okay? I can live with a bogey. But if you're two over, that's a double bogey. And that adds up. When you think about these professional golfers that are golfing in the 60s, 
okay, through 18 holes. I've done that in nine holes. Okay, you're not supposed to do that in nine holes. You know, it's a, um, it's a frustrating game. And honestly, golf brings out, for me, it's, it's a thing that I do that recharges me like nothing else. It refreshes me. But it also brings out the worst part of my brokenness. So about seven, eight months ago, start on the first tee, beautiful drive down the fairway, second shot, it goes straight down towards the green, and then all of a sudden it does this right-hand turn. Over into the tree line. Okay, take out my wedge, go to chip it on, I chip it, it bounces on the green and rolls off the back of the green. Okay, I'm, I've already hit it three times, and I'm not even on the green yet. Take out my, my wedge to chip it on. Okay, if I chip it on and get close, maybe I can salvage a bogey. Chip it on, and I chip it short leave myself a 30-foot putt for, for, uh, for a double bogey. I ended up with a double bogey. Fortunately enough, the guys that I play with, some of them are good. Most of us play like me. So we have a double bogey rule. You can't get any worse than that. So it kind of keeps the game moving. So, so I'm sitting double bogey, two over par, starting the first hole. Second hole, long par five, hardest hole in the course. I hit the ball into the right tree line. Second shot, I hit the ball, zigzag over to the left side, into the tree line. Third shot, hit a tree, went straight down. I'm still 250 yards out on a par five. To get a par, I have to hit it 250 yards and putt it once. Well, needless to say, I had got a double bogey. So at that point, my competitive juices are in there, and I'm going, oh, why do I play this stupid game? This is a game I love to hate. So I'll come to... Number three, it's over a pond. I get up, hit the ball. Guess where it goes? In the pond. Okay, I fed the fish. So I'm dropping. I'm already laying three, and I'm not even anywhere near the green. Ended up with another double bogey. This was my morning over and over again. By the time I get to hole number eight, I've already had seven double bogeys. I should have, at that point, put my clubs away in the trunk, of my car and gone home, but I kept playing, and my brokenness kept coming out more and more, so get to hold number 10, I'm in the woods, have to take a penalty shot, my driver, put the head cover back on, and it doesn't go in the bag, it goes in the bag, slam it in the bag, I mean, I am, honestly, I am ticked off at that point, <laughs> my brokenness is just oozing out. You know, it's, uh, I get to number 11, and I'm in the tree line again. I chip over the green. I ended up with another double bogey. And at that point, you know, I'm, I'm not talking to my buddies. They're not talking to me. They're probably miserable because I am, and it's, I mean, I'm just, my brokenness is just spilling out everywhere at this point. Um, there were a couple times where my clubs, it's, Instead of hitting the ball, I, after I hit the ball, I hit the ground real hard. It was quite obvious that I was not having any fun. Hole number 12, sliced it into the woods. I put my head cover back on, stuck my club nicely into the bag. I looked at my buddies and I said, guys, it's obvious. Uh, I'm not going to play good today, and I'm making the round miserable for you, and my sin is all out in the open. I just need to go home. My sanctification is more important than the golf game. Now, my brokenness 
just spilled out everywhere. And the thing that I love the most, you see, it doesn't matter who you are, you're broken. And we're in need of God's grace. We're still trying to live between the now and the not yet. We are redeemed because we've surrendered our life to Jesus Christ, but yet we still live with this brokenness. You know, your brokenness may not come out on the golf course. It may come out as you're driving down the road, okay? Um, You know, even on the way here this morning, driving down the road, there's a slow guy pulls out in front of me. I looked at my wife and I said, the gas pedal's on the right. If you push it down, the car will go. <laughs> okay, there's bro- we have brokenness, right? We must get to the place where we accept the fact that we haven't arrived. We are living between the now and the not yet. So how do we live between the now and the not yet? The first thing is we must realize that we're broken people. Understand your predicament. That's what the encouragement was to the people of Israel. The second thing that I'd like you to look at this morning, the second way to live between the now and the not yet, this is the encouragement Isaiah was giving to the nation of Israel. Understand the particularity of God. The word particularity means the uniqueness of who God is. But understand who God is in his fullness and in his greatness. Isaiah 55, starting, uh, we'll look at verse 6 again, all the way down through verse 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, making note of that word, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. So ways and thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now look at verse 8. For my thoughts, goes back to man's thoughts, abandon your thoughts. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways, here's that word, ways, my ways are not, your your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Here's the nation of Israel in captivity. They're broken, and they're still trying to do it their way. Here we are, 2023, you and I are broken, and we keep trying to do it our way. Understand who God is. God is very unique. He's one of a kind, wholly other, self-sufficient, in need of nobody. And yet he chose to be delighted in creating us and delighted to send his son Jesus to die on our behalf because he delights in us worshiping him and us enjoying him. Israel is in captivity for their rebellion, their idolatry, their violation of the covenant treaty, but yet they want to possess the promise, the not yet, without living in the now. God says, repent, seek, call, return. Why? Now look at what God tells us in this text alone about himself. He may be found. He's not a million miles away. He's not a concept that you cannot reach. He is very near and ever-present. It actually tells us in the text that God is near. How often do we lean into who he is? He is compassionate. He will abundantly pardon. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You see, the wicked Israel 
wanted to embrace their ways and their thoughts, but yet embrace the not yet and have it now. God says, there's a process here. I'm available. I am near. I am am all you need. Come to me. Let's walk through this in the now. The not yet will come. God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And he's basically, Isaiah is telling Israel here, look at where your ways and your thoughts got you. They got you into captivity. My ways, my thoughts speak of my brokenness, and they get me in trouble. I need the Lord. I need that grace that we've talked about. God is telling Israel here, now see where my ways and my thoughts will take you. Repent, turn, call upon me, return to the Lord, come and enjoy me. And I will show you where my ways and my thoughts will carry you in the now, but moving towards the not yet. And belief in God is not about what is logical. Okay? God is above our limited human logic. We are finite beings trying to figure out an infinite God. It's why we need to be dependent upon him and what he offers to us. The third thing that I would like you to look at this morning of how to live between the now and the not yet is found in verses 10 and 11. And that's to see the purposefulness of God's word. The purposefulness of God's word. Look at verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. There's an illustration that's given here that's very easy for us to understand. Rain and snow, what do they do? They come from the sky, God provides, and what does it do? It waters the earth. It brings about its fruit. It has an intended purpose that it provides for us. The snow melt turns to water. It's amazing to me. Uh, but you can actually go to a place in Israel. Um, I'm going to be there in a month. Um, our church is doing a our tour over there. But right at the foothills of Mount Hermon is, this, is the town of Caesarea Philippi. And out from the bottom of the mountain, you have this spring that comes out. I've been there in July in the hard, hottest part of the year. And there's this, this, this huge brook that runs out of the mountain. What is it? It's the snow melt off from Mount Hermon that even in the hottest months, it's providing. You see, there's a purpose for the rain and there's a purpose for the snow. It provides what God intended it to do, to water the earth. It makes the earth fruitful and it allows the seed to take root that the sower has sown and it gives bread to the eater. So it It's God's way of caring for his own and loving them and caring for them. That's the illustration, but the illustration is God's word. My words, what does it say here? My word that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. The word of God, the Bible, is our most valuable resource for living in the now as we look forward to the not yet. The source of God's word is not 
a bunch of men who wrote ancient text hundreds of and, and thousands of years ago. It is God-inspired, God-breathed-out product of what he wanted us to have. And he cared about us enough that he put it in a written form that's in multiple languages around the globe because he loves us and he wants us to have it and we can thrive from it. Look at the purpose of God's word. It says it will not return empty. It will accomplish that which God has purposed. It shall succeed in the task that it was designed for. Um, Probably about 15 years ago, I was out at a conference out in uh, Colorado, Denver area, uh, speaking at a counseling conference. I remember I was in this uh, hotel, about 18-floor hotel, looking out over the plains towards the Rocky Mountains. And you could see the clouds building over the Rocky Mountains and coming down onto the high plains there in Colorado. And you could see for miles, but you could see this huge cloudburst that's coming, and you could just see the moisture that it's dropping along its way. It's a cloudburst. Um, when I was out there, they were actually talking about flash floods that happen when these cloudbursts happen. But those cloudbursts are kind of hit and miss. It's kind of like thunderstorms in the summertime, you know, where, where you know, the times when we're in a drought, we're like, man, it needs to rain, and they're calling for thunderstorms, but it, it hits Lynchburg, but misses Charlottesville, or it hits Roanoke, you know, they're just spotty. That's what a cloudburst of rain does. It, it, it's beneficial to a degree and filling up the reservoirs, but a lot of that water runs off because it's such a deluge of moisture all at once. Um, in Israel, in the Rift Valley, where the Jordan River flows out of Mount Hermon into the Sea of Galilee, and then out of the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea, is the most arid, dry, hot spot on the planet. It is, um, it is uh, 1,300 feet below sea level at the Dead Sea. Um, 600 and something feet at the Sea of Galilee. Okay, they don't get a lot of rain at that part. They get two inches of rain year-round in that area of Israel. But yet, if you drive along the Jordan River today in the Rift Valley, you will see wheat fields, cornfields, dates, palm trees, all kinds of produce that's being grown. How are they doing it? They have mastered the art of drip irrigation. They have learned and scientifically proven this plant and this weather and this soil with these temperatures need a drop here, a drop there, and a drop here. Drip irrigation, they're saving their water, and these plants are flourishing in a very dry, arid land because they've learned the art of drip irrigation. God's Word. It's not something that you sit down and you read once and you say, I've read it, and you check it off. That's a cloudburst. That's a deluge. There's a lot that you can pull out of that. I've had friends that have read through the Bible in, in a month. You know, four hours a day get you through typical average reader. That's a lot of reading. They've connected a lot of dots, but because they've read it so fast that they've missed a lot. The, the, the daily intake of God's word will have much more of an impact and bring about its intended result day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. I began this spiritual rhythm in my life over four decades ago. And it's the one thing that I can turn back to. I've got all kinds of academic degrees. 
I wouldn't trade my reading of God's word for all of those combined. It's the daily sitting at the feet of Jesus, intaking God's word, that drip irrigation, where that drop needed to hit this broken heart to transform me and accomplish what God desired to accomplish in my life. The fourth thing that I would like you to look at this morning, the fourth way to live between the now and the not yet, is to anticipate the promised transformation. Look at verses 12 and 13. Isaiah writes this, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Okay, we read through that and we're like, huh? What is that talking about? These are miraculous descriptions that Isaiah is giving us. Okay, there's, there's Exodus language here. If you go back to the Exodus, God delivering the people of Israel out of bondage to the Egyptians. This, this idea of going out and, and the peace that's coming after 400 years of bondage, Isaiah returns to this language, to the people that were in captivity, to Assyria, and says, you shall be led forth with joy, and you shall go out with peace. He's telling them there's a time coming. It's not yet. Live in the now. It's not yet. But the time is coming when God will once again bring you out with joy, and you will go out in peace. And we do know from biblical history that Cyrus, king of Persia, you know, of course, Assyria fell to the Babylonians, Babylonians, the Babylonians fell to the Persians, and then Cyrus, king of Persia, allows the Israelites to return. I just started my reading today, the book of Ezra. And the book of Ezra is them going back to rebuild the temple. Seventy years of captivity, they're going back to rebuild the temple. This idea, this Exodus language, you shall go out in joy and you shall be led forth in peace. This is deliverance language that Isaiah is giving. Okay, live in the now, but I'm giving you a glimpse of the not yet. It's coming. Okay, it's coming. But we also have here creation language. Okay, the mountains and the hills will break forth in singing. Have any of you heard hills and mountains sing? I haven't. God says it will happen. This miraculous event that's going to happen. Trees of the field will clap their hands. It's this creation language that God is going to bring glory to himself in delivering the nation of Israel out of captivity. The scriptures tell us that when somebody comes to faith in Christ, there's great rejoicing in heaven. Man, creation language is here. But there's also new creation language that is given here. Look at this. The thorn shall come up the cypress. The briar shall come up the myrtle. Remember when God cursed the earth in Genesis? You know, you shall now work the earth by the sweat of your brow, and there will will be weeds and thistles and thorns. Okay? This is is what it's talking about here. There's going to come a time when there will no longer be the thorn. The thorn will not be there. It will be the cypress. The briar will not be there, but a beautiful myrtle tree will come up. He's painting this picture that endure the now because the not yet is coming. 
but he's encouraging them to repent. Return to me, seek me, call upon me. And then these things will come to be. The result of all of this is what? That God will be worshipped. And this is, these are the signs of an everlasting covenant that he has made. And we happen to be here in the New Testament time period, the church who has been included and grafted in to this wonderful thing that God has done redeeming all of mankind. Four things to live of how to live in the, between the now and the not yet is understand your predicament. Understand the particularity of who God is. Understand the purposefulness of his word and understand and anticipate the promised transformation that God wants to bring about in your life, but what God wants to bring about in culture. The radical transformation of people following Jesus and becoming like Jesus is the greatest testimony that we can give our world that is seeking, but they're chasing after their ways and their thoughts. God offers so much more. In conclusion this morning, between the now and the not yet, there are two things that I want to bring out. One is if you have never surrendered your heart and your affections to the person of Jesus Christ and his work that he finished, you need redemption. And there are people here this morning that would love to talk to you about that. But if you are a follower of Christ, is there an ongoing transformation going on in your life? I just turned 60. I need that transformation just as much today as I did when I was 20. It's an ongoing, it never ends until we're in the presence of Jesus. The big idea this morning is that God's grace through Jesus Christ is ready to rescue, to redeem, and to transform. My question to you this morning is, will you yield your all to him? this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your goodness, your greatness, your grace in reaching down to an undeserving people. Lord, I am so undeserving. Pride, arrogance, jealousy, greed, all those things, Father, personally, I still wrestle with. And I know my brothers and sisters here this morning also wrestle with those things. Lord, we're, we're a broken people. We need you. We're in need of being rescued, redeemed and transformed. Original sin still resides in us, and it's an ongoing battle for us, Father. We know that it's been paid for in the person of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would live between the now and the not yet. Lord, we know that our world is hitting in directions uh, that are not pleasing to you, that are heartbreaking to us. And Lord, there's so much uncertainty. But yet, Lord, your word gives us certainty that you are in control. Nothing happens apart from your sovereign providence. Lord, we ask that now, in this moment, Lord, as we anticipate what's to come, the good things that are coming, Lord, you establishing your kingdom, you doing away with the evil, you're returning, setting up your kingdom here, eternity in your presence. Lord, we're looking forward to that, but 
But now, Lord, we ask that you would help us be all that you desire us to be for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name.